Amen. You may be seated. I want to welcome you here this Easter morning and invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 961 and 962. 961 and 962. Uh, I'm going to read for us this morning uh, verses 1 through 11. And then we will spend our time this morning focusing on verses 3 through 8. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, this is Easter Sunday. It is Resurrection Sunday, and we have gathered together to celebrate the joy, and with joy, the resurrection of Jesus. But before we can talk about resurrection, we must talk about something that is far less desirable, namely death. Something I can say this morning with great confidence is that death is in our future. All of us are getting older Each of us will eventually face death. And if we are blessed with a long life, we will actually witness the death of many around us. This is something that, of course, we don't like to think about very much. And it's something that nowadays we aren't forced to think about as much. It's one of the benefits of living in an affluent society. Did you know that until the 20th century, most children died before the age of 10. Almost everyone died at home with family and friends. So folks were more familiar with the reality and the experience of death because it was just taking place more around them and they were exposed to it more often. Now everyone, children and adults, are likely to, or are living much longer. And life expectancy has drastically increased. And when folks die, oftentimes it takes place in a hospital, not in one's home. So it doesn't seem maybe as real and personal. However, the fact remains that we all will die. It's not good. It's not natural. It's not right. But it's true. This life on earth is relatively short and will eventually come to an end. And this morning what I want us to do is turn to a familiar passage as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus, as it relates to Easter Sunday, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
And in this text, Paul declares to us Jesus' victory over death. In fact, if you look a little bit further in the chapter, in verses 54 through 56, uh, the Apostle Paul writes there, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so, I want us to answer this question this morning. How did Jesus win the ultimate victory over death? How did Jesus win the ultimate victory over death? And Paul answers this question in verses 3 through 8, which will be the focus of our message this morning. And he answers this question in verses 3 through 8 by declaring to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is through the message of the gospel that we learn how Jesus won the ultimate victory over death. As we consider the message of the gospel this morning, we're going to summarize it, as Paul does here, in four points. The first point is this, Jesus died. The second point is Jesus was buried. The third point is Jesus was raised. And the fourth point is Jesus appeared. So Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and Jesus appeared. Now before we dive into each one of these points, I just want to mention up front that I want you to understand this morning that what we are speaking of is of utmost significance. It is of great importance. In fact, Paul says as much in our text. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says there, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So there Paul says it, and he, he follows this by laying out for us the message of the gospel, that Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. And it's important for us to recognize this because we live in an information age. We have TV, we have 24-hour news cycle, there's internet, social media. We are constantly bombarded with information. And given that, it is oftentimes difficult for us to decide as all this information is coming towards us, what is really important? What should I really give my time and attention to to process and to know? What's the most important thing for me to know? And Paul says here clearly that the most important thing for us to understand, the matter that is of utmost importance, first importance, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we will be considering this morning. First, Jesus died. Look there in chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, Jesus' death must be the most well-known written-about death in human history. And we might wonder why. Why is Jesus' death so well-known? Well, it's because of what it claims to accomplish. You see it there in the text. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, here it is, for our sins. Now, that is a remarkable claim. What the Apostle Paul is saying here and the rest of the New Testament is declaring is that Jesus Christ didn't just die, but when He died, He accomplished something. Something of grand and eternal proportions, namely the forgiveness of sins. I don't know if you know this, but Islam actually rejects the idea that Jesus died on the cross. They have differing versions of this. Uh, one version is that at the last minute, God swapped Judas with Jesus, and Judas died on the cross instead of Jesus. But nonetheless, they deny the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And we immediately would object to that, right? 
But upon further reflection, Islam might be onto something here. Because the reason why they say that Jesus did not die on the cross is because they say that God would never allow a just man to die for an unjust man. And so, is Islam onto something here? I think so, in one sense. You see, Jesus did die. It's clearly taught in the Scriptures, and it's overwhelmingly attested to by history. Jesus died. Did He die an innocent man? Well, in one sense, yes. In the sense that Jesus Himself never committed sin. He never committed an offense against God or against another. And if it's true that Jesus was perfectly innocent, then we have to ask ourselves the question, and that is true, how could God allow Jesus to die and to experience His wrath? Well, because in another sense, Jesus did not die an innocent man. And for us to understand this concept, it's critical that we understand the idea of substitution. Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, who was perfect and was sinless, became sin. Not that He personally committed sin, but our sin was transferred, it was credited to Him, so that He became all of our selfishness, all of our rebellion, all of our lust, all of our pride, all of our unbelief and bitterness and pettiness and dishonesty and hatred. Did Jesus die an innocent man? Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. R.C. Sproul states it this way, At the moment that Christ took upon Himself the sin of the world, He became the most grotesque, most obscene mass of sin in the history of the world. End of quote. In other words, He took all the sins of all His people on the cross. And He died. He took our punishment, our wrath, our judgment, so that we might be forgiven and pardoned and declared innocent before God. Charles Spurgeon states it this way, You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if He were you. And what Islam sees as injustice, what they see as a scandal, is in reality the glory of the Christian gospel, the grace of God, that Jesus died in our place and on our behalf so that we might be forgiven. Second, first Jesus died. Second, Jesus was buried. Look there in verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. Now, why would the Apostle Paul mention here that Jesus was buried? Well, in part because his burial is a confirmation of his death. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is primarily about the resurrection of Jesus. But as I said at the beginning of the message this morning, in order for there to be a resurrection, there must first be a death. And Paul is saying here that Jesus died. And he was really dead. In fact, they buried him. And history testifies to the physical death of Jesus. We know that Jesus was flogged with a whip that was laced with stones and glass and metal. 
We also know that in Jesus' day, many prisoners would have died simply from the whipping he received. And Jesus was forced to carry a heavy wooden crossbeam to the place of his execution. In those moments, he was so mentally and emotionally and physically exhausted that he was unable to do so, and a man named Simon intervened and carried it for him. Once they arrived at the place of execution, Jesus was nailed to the cross so that spikes were nailed into his hands and into his feet. And then the cross was raised, and we can imagine that as it was dropped into the hole where it would stand, Jesus' body was jarred into place where it would then hang for several hours. His body there hung, fastened by nails to the tree. And death finally occurred from suffocation. You see, given the position that Jesus was on on the cross, he would have found it very difficult to get adequate breath, and so he would have pushed up from his feet, opening his chest cavity so that he could take in breath, and then he would drop again. And he would push up again with his feet and take in breath and drop again. You can imagine how exhausting this would have been. And eventually, as he lost strength to continue this routine, he slowly suffocated. A professional executioner then would c- came and checked to see if he was alive. And to make sure, he pierced the side of Jesus, which then flowed with blood and water, a sure sign of death. At that point, Jesus' body was removed from the cross. It was wrapped in burial clothes and spices were applied to minimize the stench of death. Then his body was placed in a tomb, and a large stone was rolled over the mouth of the tomb, and Roman soldiers were stationed outside of the tomb to guard the body, understanding that their failure to do so would likely result in their own death. Now, what is the point here? Jesus died. He was literally, physically dead, and therefore they buried him in a tomb. You see, before... Sin had entered into the world, there was no death. But when sin entered into the world, death entered into the world. And as Jesus took upon himself our sin, he died our death. He died one of the most excruciating deaths any of us could imagine. And part of the confirmation of his death is that he was buried. So Jesus died, Jesus was buried. Third, Jesus was raised. Look there in verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So here Paul declares the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make a clarification here because you might ask some people today, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And they would say, yes, I believe that the personality and the power and the inspiration and the influence of Jesus lives on today. Much like the spirit of Plato lives on in his writings, or the genius of Shakespeare lives on in his plays, or the magic of Elvis lives on in his music. You might not agree with that last one, I don't know. (laughs) But any honest reading of the text must conclude that this is not what Paul is saying. Does Jesus inspire us today? Does His teachings in His life inspire us today? Yes, absolutely. 
But here, clearly Paul is saying more than that. That's why Paul goes to great lengths to stress that Jesus died, that he was buried, that later he appeared to others. The point is that the resurrection was a bodily, physical resurrection. He literally was raised from the dead. And no other religious man or woman or figure can make this claim. Other religious leaders may have taught many good things, but none of them can make this claim. Not Muhammad, not Gandhi, not Confucius. No other person can make this claim. They all died never to be heard from again, but not Jesus. Others might object and say, okay, so Jesus was raised from the dead. What's the big deal? There's other resurrections in the Bible. What about Lazarus? The Bible says that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but none of us are here this morning to worship Lazarus. But of course, there's a distinction to be made here as well, isn't there? Between Jesus' resurrection and other resurrections that we witness in the Bible, Lazarus was raised from the dead. But then in 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, he would die. Not so with Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead to never die again. And in this sense, Jesus conquered death once and for all. So not only did Jesus die our death in our place, but he finally defeated death and conquered death by being raised from the dead. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 54 through 56 at the end of the chapter, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And understand this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul is presenting it to us here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just an idea. It's not just a philosophy. It is true that other teachers, other religious figures, have ideas and philosophies about death, what might happen or might not happen after we die. But no, the resurrection of Jesus is not just an idea or philosophy, it's an historical event. It actually happened. There's evidence to support it. There's witnesses who corroborate what took place. In real time, in real space, in real history, Jesus conquered the grave. And Paul goes on to say that this historical event is so important to the Christian gospel, it's so important to the message of Christianity, that if it's not true, then Christianity is a sham. So later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, we read, But if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Or he goes on to say in verses 17 to 19, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have been fallen asleep, that is, died, in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. However, if Jesus was raised from the dead, And of course, that changes everything. Then Jesus is who he said he was. Then all that he said and all that he did was true. Then he did, in fact, conquer the grave. Then he is the Christ. Then life is truly to be found in him. And the only response left for us is to worship him and to trust him and to follow him. So, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised. Fourth, Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared. Notice there's a structure here in our text. So, first of all, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus died, 
And then his confirmation of his death, he says he was buried. Then secondly, the Apostle Paul says Jesus was raised. And then his confirmation of his resurrection, he says he appeared. That's why he declares that Jesus appeared here in these verses. He's emphasizing, he's confirming the resurrection of Jesus. And notice here as we read these verses that he mentions that word appeared four times in just a few verses. So look there in verses 6 through 8. We read, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now these appearances are very important. First of all, we see here in verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas, which is just another name for Peter. And we know as a result of the appearance of Jesus to Peter that Peter was never the same. Prior to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, at Jesus' death, in fear we know that Peter denied Jesus three times. But something happened to Peter, because shortly after Jesus' death, Peter is then boldly, publicly declaring the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After this, Peter is beaten, he's threatened, he's imprisoned, he's ultimately martyred, but nothing could shut him up as he continued to declare this message that Jesus died and he was raised from the dead. So how do we account for this radical transformation in Peter's life? And the answer is... He appeared to Cephas. Notice in verse 5 that he appeared to the twelve. This would have been Jesus' original twelve disciples minus Judas. Then in verse 6 we read, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. We know here that Paul was actually writing this letter to the Corinthians about two decades after Jesus' resurrection. And so most of the witnesses that saw Jesus after the resurrection were still alive. And so what the Apostle Paul here is essentially doing is he's extending an invitation for his readers to verify the claim that Jesus has been raised. He's saying, essentially, there are witnesses to this, and you can ask them. He says, other than some who have fallen asleep, that is, they have died, most of them, it seems, were still living and could testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is noteworthy because in the first century, Christianity was the cause of great angst for the Jewish religious leaders, for Roman officials, and in their desire to suppress Christianity and these claims of resurrection, these witnesses who were bearing testimony that they had seen the resurrected Christ, all they had to do was to produce the body of Jesus. But of course they never did because It was not there. It was not in the grave, in the tomb. Notice in verse 7, then he appeared to James. Now, who is James? James was the brother of Jesus. And we know during Jesus' ministry that his brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. In fact, they tested him and challenged him about his claims. And that's understandable, right? If any of you have siblings, you can probably sympathize. Who's going to believe that their brother is the Messiah of the world, right? The long-awaited Messiah, the Savior. But in fact, they did eventually believe. In fact, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and was martyred for his belief that his brother had been raised from the dead. J.P. Moreland, who is a professor of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology, says this, quote, 
The Gospels tell us Jesus' family, including James, were embarrassed by what he was claiming to be. They didn't believe in him. They confronted him. In ancient Judaism, it was highly embarrassing for a rabbi's family not to accept him. Therefore, the gospel writers would have no motive for fabricating this skepticism if it weren't true. Later, the historian Josephus tells us that James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, was stoned to death because of his belief in his brother. Why did James' life change? Paul tells us the resurrected Christ appeared to him. There's no other explanation, end of quote. Notice in verse 7, Paul goes on to say, then he appeared to all the apostles. This would have been a larger group of individuals who saw the resurrected Christ and were commissioned by him to proclaim the gospel. And then in verse 8, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And who is the apostle Paul? Of course, Paul was a religious leader and scholar in Judaism, and before his conversion, he hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus. He hated the Christian church. He believed that Jesus was a fraud and a blasphemer, and he made it his mission to destroy the church. In fact, he was on mission to round up and imprison and kill, and kill Christians, to rid the world of Christianity when the resurrected Christ appeared to him. And when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Paul's life was changed forever. The greatest enemy of the church became its greatest proponent, spreading the message of Jesus' death and resurrection from one end of the Roman Empire to another. And so what is Paul's point here in these verses? Paul's point in these verses, verses 6 through 8, is that Jesus appeared. He appeared at many times, in many places, to a wide variety of people, and those who saw him were never the same. Some might object, though, and they might say, well, yes, these apostles died, but there are people even today, and they died for what they believed in, but there are people today who would be willing to die for a lie, who die for untrue things. One example would be Muslim extremists who are willing to die for the false hope that they will inherit paradise and countless virgins. But there is an important difference here that we must recognize. The difference is this. If the disciples of Jesus, if the apostles were dying for a lie, then they knew it then they knew it was a lie beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because they were dying for something not that they had heard or been taught by another, not based on the testimony and opinion of another that they had been persuaded by. No, they were dying for something that they professed that they had personally witnessed and seen and touched. So they would have known beyond a shadow of a doubt that what they were dying for was a lie. And here's the thing. All of them were willing to die for it. Not just one or two of them that were delusional, but all of them. And so if it's the case that they were dying for a lie, we have to then accept that all of them were in on the hoax, all of them were willing to buy into the lie, and then all of them were, rem- were willing to remain true to that lie in the face of grave persecution, torture, and death. 
doesn't seem likely. Chuck Colson, who was a member of Richard Nixon's administration, and he was prosecuted for his role in Watergate, he spent some time in prison uh, as a result of that. And during this dark season in his life, the Lord saved him, and he became a Christian. Eventually, he developed an international mission or, or prison ministry. Listen to what Chuck Colson has to say about the apostles' testimony related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, quote, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because twelve men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for forty years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. End of quote. The Apostle Paul here is stating the reality that Jesus appeared, and he appeared on these occasions over and over and over again to confirm the fact that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. And there are many reasons why we should believe that to be true, but one of the powerful testimonies to the fact why we should believe that is true is because of the witness of those who were there, who bore witness to this over and over again consistently and were willing to die for this conviction. So this is the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised. Jesus appeared. Do you notice that in every case, Jesus is the subject? Because the gospel, if you want to boil it down, the gospel is really a message about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And if the gospel is going to affect you, if it is going to change you, then you must know this person, Jesus, who is alive today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Christian and theologian who lived and was martyred during the days of Nazi Germany, writes this, quote, It is not that God's help and presence must still be proved in our life, Rather, God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did in God's Son, Jesus Christ, than to discover what God intends for us today. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised on the day of judgment. Our salvation is from outside ourselves. I, found, I find salvation not in my life story, but only in the story of Jesus Christ. Only those who allow themselves to be found in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, are with God and God with them. And if you understand what Bonhoeffer is saying here, it's really good news. Because what Bonhoeffer is declaring here is that this is not salvation, eternal salvation. It's not something that you or I have done. It's not something you or I could do, but it is something that has been done for us in Jesus. And how do we experience it? 
Let's just look at one more verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. How do we experience this salvation? How do we experience this good news and deliverance and this promise of eternal life? We receive it, as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. We believe it and trust in it, and we stand in it. In other words, we turn from our sins and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that He died for our sins, that He was buried to deliver us from death, that He was raised in order to give us life, life now and life eternal. And the promise of the gospel is that if you trust in the Lord Jesus and His work, His death, His resurrection on your behalf, He will, in fact, save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the good news of the Gospel. Lord, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us in time and in history. And the salvation that You have purchased for us is something that was witnessed and testified to by many. We thank You that Jesus has accomplished this salvation in real time, in real history, by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the grave. Lord, I do pray that You would work by Your Spirit now and that You would open blind eyes and deaf ears, that we might receive this good news, that we might believe it, that we might stand in it, and that we might experience Your salvation and grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.